It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Manu Veth. And as always, I'm joined by Tim. Hey, Tim, still still distance uh, separating us all the way across the water in Vancouver. I'm still in Europe getting ready, gearing up for the Russia World Cup. But how is it going over on the West Coast? It's going great. We had a wonderful, beautiful uh, week of sunny and pretty much summer weather. Which everyone enjoyed and got out. The weekend was all covered with rain, and we're back to good weather as well. So you're missing out on some good weather, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty fun in Germany and in Europe in general as well. Yeah, you know what it is. We had we had summer months last week. We had 26 degrees, 28 degrees, 29 degrees. So I can't really complain too much about the weather, Tim. Wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty nice, eh? Um, but. Joining us, and it, Andrew unfortunately is busy he's, uh, doing a stadium tour in Volgograd, so you know, no Andrew right now, but that's okay because Vadim is back on the show. Vadim Fomanov, how is it going? All right, how are you? Oh, I'm pretty good, pretty good. You're still on the, well, you're, you're still down in that Duke University, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the weather is like because I haven't been outside in about. <laughs> You're one of those closet student housing places, aren't you? <laughs> Basically, yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. Uh, well, listen, we'll we'll get to you, Vadim, in a little bit. Although I think Tim has some questions um, regarding a topic uh, involving Spartak Moscow uh, when it mm-hmm. comes to, comes to Russian football. So we'll get you involved in that. But Tim. Um, before we jump, I'm gonna give Vadim the floor, um, for Ukrainian football. We'll start this week, uh, again with Russian football. Like last time Vadim was on, he got the, the start with the Ukrainian league first. So we'll flip flop it again. Uh, give the floor to Russian football. Cause it was a pretty exciting week. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the results, and I'll do the same thing that last week. We'll, we'll count down the results first. Uh, Arsenal Tula. 2-1 against Angie. Um, Angie, of course, in that relegation zone, right? Um, Amka Perm, Spartak Moscow. Spartak back to the winning race. So I guess you were complaining about Spartak last week in the podcast helped him. So uh, I'll give that yeah. 100% <laughs> to you. <laughs> Thank you. Zenit CSKA Moscow, the Klasichina, um, the Classico, the Russian Classico, ended 0-0. Rostov Tosno 2-0 for Rostov. Tosno now in big trouble. They're of course in the Russian Cup final. We'll, we'll get to talk about them a little bit as well. 
Uber beating Habarovsk. Habarovsk, of course, already relegated, so um, yeah, doesn't really affect them too much. Dynamo Moscow, Ruben Kazan, 0-0. Um, Tarek Grosny, Ural, 0-0. And then, of course, the match that got everyone talking, Krasnodar Locomotive, 2-0 for Krasnodar. Um, before we talk about that match in particular, because there, there's quite a bit uh, involving that, I want to start with the Zenit CSKA Moscow game, um, Tim. And this has been a game that's been a big deal for the in the last few years. Of course, this year it's, it doesn't affect the Russian Championship as much as it has in previous years. Of course, um, CSKA is still with a tiny outside chance of winning the title. It's a minuscule chance, five points behind Loco with two outstanding games, so I guess it's sort of possible. Um, Zenit is completely out of the title race, but those two teams in the last 10 years have basically won 80% of the Russian championships, so this is a pretty big game in Russian football, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, it is, and it's, uh, you know, it's one of the, those are two clubs that have been probably the best clubs in Russia for the past 15 years, and that's Spartak Moscow fans who says that, so, you know, it's, it should be counted for something because yeah, they're definitely like they won um, the most number of trophies, uh, including cup, super cup, and the Russian league. They've been the most successful in Europe in the past, I would say, 15 to 18 years. Both clubs won the Europa League or UEFA Cup back then, and both clubs um, went to the playoffs and Champions League. So definitely, those two are the most successful. I'm not saying biggest. I'm saying the most successful clubs in the past probably 15 to 18 years when the Premier League started as as, as under this name. And um, yes, obviously that game attracts a lot of fans and the Kristofsky Stadium was full, but it ended up in a fairly uneventful 0-0. And I think I saw that stats that the last three games between those clubs finished uh, 0-0. So, you know, the stakes are high. Russia is a very low-scoring league. So... Yeah, that happened, and uh, by 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 this result, Zenit completely lost chances of winning the um, the league, uh, even mathematically. Uh, and uh, now their main goal is somehow to qualify for a Champions League, and they need to pretty much outdo Spartak or CSKA by by quite a lot. So there, yeah, it doesn't look like. Um, you know, it's, it's it's it has been a weird season for Zenit. Uh, Ceska, like we've been saying, they've been doing, they they in a good position. They, in my opinion, had a good season. So that game finished zero zero, and pretty much everything in that sense in regards of Zenit and Ceska qualifying for the Champions League uh, remained the same as the last week. So Ceska in the third position, and they just waiting for Spartak to make a mistake and they need to pretty much better play better than Spartak and then they will get into the group of Champions League if they don't then Spartak if Spartak pretty much wins the remaining two games they will be in Champions League Zenit they need to wait for Spartak and Ceska's mistakes and also make sure that they win all the remainder games so it's um it looks like you know it's getting closer and closer we only have two games left and um everything becomes you know, a little bit more settled. But the cool thing about it, because like, you know, we have uh, in Europe, we have so many different leagues which already had the, the title winner a miles before the end of the mm-hmm. season, Manchester City, Bayern, um, you know, we have uh, obviously in Spain, in France the same. 
But um, in Russian league, there's only one club, and it's Kahabarovsk, who pretty much set their 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 position. Everything else, they the clubs can still change their positions, and every single uh, 15 clubs out of 16 is playing for something. And we have still two two matches left because the teams in the middle of the table. Some of them can qualify for the sixth place, which potentially rumored could be still a European place, or they can get into the relegation playoffs. So it's a super, super tight league, and uh, that's exciting. And obviously, okay, the, the, the top of the table, which I just described. Yeah, it's because the sixth place, we don't know if Tosno or <laughs> Avantgarde Kursk, and if you want to find <laughs> out more about that uh, last week's podcast, those two teams will likely playing the second division next year and Tosno huge financial problems. Um they might not even be around anymore next year. Right? So there's is rumors that neither of those teams will get um the license to play in Europe um next year. So that spot the Russian Cup spot will go back to the league, which then would open up again sixth spot in the league. Because it was we all expected Spartak to win that cup. So everyone was racing for that sixth spot and those those teams are right now Ufa, Tula, and Ruben, Ural and Ruben Kazan. I guess even Ahmad Krosny still has a chance, right? Well, even Dynamo has a little bit of a yeah. chance. It's unrealistic, but they mathematically they can still get the sixth spot. Yeah, so I guess now there's, it's not a guarantee because UEFA might very well say if uh, Tosno go under and then they give the spot to Avangard Kurs, which is, would be, of course, hilarious if Avangard Kurs next year plays in the Europa League <laughs> second division side but um, yeah I guess the teams playing for that sixth spot they will all try to you know dare about be there just in case right Tim just in case that spot opens up um, and you of, get that Europa League spot of course and then uh, from what I understand the cup winner should be going straight to the group so, you know, obviously for Russian coefficient and just for Russian football in general, it's way better to have either Ufa, Arsenal, Oral, or especially Rubin Kazan in the group stage of Europa League than Avangard Kursk or Tosna, which, you, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's fair play that, you know, the club and their fans, they fought for everything, and, like, if they made to the final, it's all well-deserved. But if you look just as a Russian football as a whole, yeah, we kind of need the... The slightly stronger uh, representation in a Europa League uh, group stage. Well, you know, one team that looks now they're going to the Europa League group stage, and that would be a very strong representation. Um, is Sinitem, <laughs> and I mean this is this this is the story of the season. This this team spent ninety four million euros. I sound like a broken record on new players. Um, and they mm-hmm. had not a good year, not at all. And now, and, and Vadim, I want to actually get your opinion on this in, as well, because I, I'm pretty sure you follow Italian football and the Italian national team at least a little bit. Uh, Mancini is getting promoted out of his job at Senid, and it looks like he's taking the job, um, the Italy job, the Squadra job, to become the head coach of the Italian national team. Despite such a poor season, I mean, Tim, uh, this is this is somewhat hilarious, questionable. <laughs> um, trying to figure out the right words, he did not exactly do things with Sinit that deserved that position, did he? No, no, he he certainly didn't, and uh, especially for the club of uh, Zenit size and all the money they spent, 
Um, obviously, like a, a qualifying for Europa League, it's not what they were uh, hoping for, and uh, not even that because uh, you know, like things happen and you have a bad season. But just like the atmosphere around Zenit is poisonous. I talked to a couple of Zenit fans, and they just really, they just they say, I don't like what's happening with my team, and it's it's all thanks to Roberto Mancini because he created that atmosphere around the club and like me and you called him out like that that's what we kind of I didn't predict that but I said that that's if something goes wrong if it, it will go really wrong in the Zenit dressing room and that's what happened and it's all thanks to Mancini I think it was not even that bad when Luchescu was there it was again the atmosphere was fairly poisonous when Luchescu was there but there was no like um open conflict and when Zuba and Shatov go to on loan to different clubs score the decisive goals and then emotionally just break down like Shatov was crying Zuba just really ran almost ran to Mancini and jump in front of him and did his celebration it really shows that you know the conflict really went from the dressing room to the public eye and um, yeah, when that happens and with your team, it's it's really poisonous and it's really disappointing. And as a fan, you can't really do anything. You you support your team, but then there's a coach who fights with other one. And um, yeah, he was busy looking for Italy job, going back to Italy and figuring out the stuff. I don't think he had enough time to actually work with the team and uh, do something. Yeah, Vadim, uh, you've probably seen this news too. Mancini, you take the Italy job. What's you been your first reaction when you saw that? Well, I just don't know if in Italy they haven't been paying attention to what's going on in at Zenit or if there's no other candidates. It says something about the state of Italian football right now, I think, that, that you know, Roberto Mancini, who's completely failed at Zenit, is the top candidate. Mm-hmm. But time i don't know i mean he has had success at inter in manchester city so maybe you can't judge him based on this one season and i think really from from my limited knowledge it looks like he came to zenit very arrogant and thinking that he could spend all this money and walk the league which obviously has not happened but maybe in a national team context it'll be different and he you know he knows what he's going up against italy didn't even make it to the world cup and he can't just spend 90 million euros and buy yeah, but that's a good question um, because you, you mentioned this, Vadim. He can't just spend 90 million euros on the Italian national team. That's <laughs> thankfully not how international football works quite yet, although people get their way, you never know. I personally, I, I'm struggling with this because, of course, uh, Carlo Ancelotti was the other candidate. I guess he's preferring salmon fishing on the Pacific coast, right? <laughs> Still waiting to run into him at the VIP launch in Vancouver one day. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting that it's become such a, such a position that no one wants, and all of a sudden Mancini um, gets this position. And I think everyone involved is kind of happy with this because I, I think it was you, Tim, mentioning that it basically saves Sanid a whole bunch of money, doesn't it? Because they won't have to fire him because he gets promoted out of his job. Yeah, and then he actually, it and it was a few weeks ago when the uh, Italian rumors just started. He was asked about uh, this possibility of taking on Italian job as a press conference, and he said, said to the journalist, "My friend, I don't need Zenit's money," and um, pretty much saying that, like, kind of like being obvious that if he would get an Italian job, he will just walk away. And I think like the way the contract is structured is not if he if he is not fired, 
he, they don't have to pay this massive compensation, which I think eight to nine million dollars or something like a good amount of money. So he, for, for, I, I think the way he sees it is like obviously, um, a good career move in terms of just the status because you are the coach of the national team and Italy it's 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 a big job mostly like in any country and um but we all know that he wasn't the first choice he was choice number three or four because Conte and Ancelotti were the top choices for the job but for different reasons they looks like they didn't end up being the Italian coach so yes Italy ended up with their third fourth choice and um, I'm not sure, you know, given his latest projects, and I refer to Galatasaray and Zenit, uh, if that's a good decision for Italian football. But luckily, we're not an Italian football podcast, so we don't really have to worry much about it. Uh, but yeah, it's just interesting. And in that sense, it's really interesting that what would be the next step for Zenit, because uh, um, in, in press... Uh, there was some news about that they have the list of uh, 10 candidates. Uh, so it's a fairly big list, which includes uh, Simak, Sinisha Mihailovic, uh, Car- Carlo Ancelotti, and uh, a few other names. I think even Tuchel was mentioned, um, who, you know, they're not interviewing yet, but who they kind of discussing um, in Zenit. So it will be interesting what would be the next move for Zenit. Um, in my I think they will go for somebody big again for a big name. I don't think they will give a chance somebody young like Simak. But again, it's it's very hard to to predict with uh, what would be Zenit's next uh, step. Uh, but again, we would have to to wait and see who would be the the next uh, Zenit coach if Roberto Martini were to leave for Italy. I'd be shocked if it's. Yeah, I think Simak would be the logical choice. I know Saul Pope, who writes for the Football Grad Network, he's a big fan of him and uh-huh. really wants him to take over the job, right? And maybe one of those days we'll get Saul um, to come on again and speak to us about the situation at Zenit. But personally, I think they, the way they're structured as a club and the way they want to represent themselves abroad. And the, the way it is as a project, right? I mean, this is a Gazprom club. This is a club that's supposed to be this shining light of Russian football and uh, foreign policy project almost. They need to have a big name coach. It's almost in their DNA, right? The DNA of, of what's the marketing yeah. philosophy. Um, I mean, every time you turn on the Champions League, you get a Gazprom commercial that's all about mm-hmm. culture and art and all that kind of, you know, nonsense. And I, I think that. Sinit is very much part of that marketing vehicle, so it needs to be a big name coach. And you mentioned Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, yeah, I I could see him do it. I mean, he has that connection because of of his work with Chelsea, right? Working with Roman Abramovich, Chelsea are of course one of the clubs in the Gazprom universe. Um, they are sponsored by Gazprom, so I could see them using their connections to to that you maybe perhaps possibly get him to come on. But I think the smarter choice would be um, a local coach. But yeah, Tim, I want, I want to move on um, because I want to discuss, <laughs> discuss your, your club next, Spartak Moscow. You seemed out of the title race um, and you are probably still out of the title race um, because it is still four points with only two matches left. And Loku have that tiebreaker, right? The, the, because they won the 
the two matches against you. I uh, know they won one and drew one another, so they have that tiebreaker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a sense, it's five points, but uh, you could yeah. still do it. Um, well, well, it's fairly simple because like Zenith, they have two games remaining. Uh, one game against uh, Zenith at home. Uh, next match day, and then they have a game away in Arsenal Tula. So Spartak needs to win two games, and then uh, Zin- uh, Lokomotiv, they need for Spartak to win the league, they need to get only one point out of those two games, which is could be realistic. Uh, like, you know, they can lose at home to Zenit, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, given state of Zenit, it's uh, not given. And then going away to Arsenal Tula is also, you know, it's not a given three points, but. Lokomotiv, they have been doing, they have been winning those games. So yes, Spartak is still, I, I, I agree, still out of the title race. But yeah, like the game against Ankara, it was a fairly routine game. Uh, Massimo Carrera um, completely changed the tactics. He pl- played with three center backs, which he hasn't done, uh, haven't done in a while. And um, also, uh, there's quite a few rumors going on around the club. Uh, Glushakov was left at home with an injury. Uh, which, based on the reports, didn't, didn't seem that serious. And um, in response to that, Glushakov posted a photo on Instagram, him being by himself alone at the Akriti Arena, and he says that sometimes it's better to stay at home by yourself, clearly refer- referring that he wasn't taken um, on, on, you know, on the trip to Perm to play against Amkar. Uh, Dmitry Kambarov, who had a horrific game um, against uh, Ahmad, uh, once Spartak lost, also was left on the bench, and uh, Lorenzo Melgarejo was put in instead of him on as a left back. And the biggest news piece of news which broke: uh, the second assistant coach Roman Pilipchuk, who has been um, Massimo Carrera's second, third man in in the coaching staff, he was sent officially to uh, watch the game of Rostov who is the next Spartak opponent. And when Massimo Carrera was asked about it in the pre-match interview, he just ex- he just exploded. He was so unhappy with that question. And it, it really touched him. And he said, it's, it's, it's my coaching staff. I make the decisions who does what. And it was my decision to send Roman Pilipchuk um, to watch Rostov. That never happened before in the two years Carrera has been with the team. He, he always, Roman Pilipchuk, was in the squad. And um, that kind of led to the rumors that Roman Spilipchuk's time in Spartak is, is done. And then that's question now how we can bring Vadim in because uh, the the rumor who can replace Roman Spilipchuk is Riancho, who uh, has a lot of history working in Ukraine. And uh, Vadim already spoke about um, him on the podcast. And I was actually very, very interested in Vadim's opinion. And this is what we'll uh, cover. So just really before I include Vadim, I just really want to summarize what happened. Two biggest leaders of Spartak are out of the squad. The coach is out of the squad, and people saying that Massimo Carrera uh, really is going for the big change of the squad in in the coming uh, off season, and uh, that might affect the captain of the team, the vice captain of the team, and the assistant coach. Obviously, this is all rumors so far, but um, it's quite obvious that uh, you know this uh, something is happening in the club, especially with Roman Spiripchuk. Role and uh, Vadim, could you please tell us a little bit about Riancho, who, like you said, pretty much was the man behind Dynamo Kiev's success? No one really knows, you know, how how much of the success can be attributed to him. I think some of it had to do with the media being skeptical that you know that Ribrov could come in and achieve success immediately at Dynamo, and then you have Riancho, who's a Spanish expert, 
It makes for an easy narrative to say that he is really the brains behind the success. But regardless, I think everybody recognizes that he did have a significant impact, and he's worked in Russia in the past, actually. He was he was the fitness coach at Uvin Kazan for a few years before moving to, to Dynamo. And just just to clarify, so he's he's being linked, but not, not as the head coach, right? As an assistant? As an assistant, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's then... His record as an assistant is you know, very successful. I think what happened in a Dynamo toward the end is that he went to Surkis and said, these players, you know, including like Harmash and a few others, sell them and buy better replacements because I have squeezed everything I had out of this squad. And when Surkis said, no, you know, we can't afford it, he said, see you later and left. Enjoy the uh-huh. coaching. So I don't know much about Spartak's finances right now. But if Spartak can't afford to bring in the players that he thinks he can work with, I think it's going to be a very successful appointment. And and what's his strength? Is his strength more like of a tactical, or or he's good at developing uh, younger uh, players? Or like, what's he? Would you say his strengths? I wouldn't say it's really youth players as much as supposedly tactics, but also he's known as a as a fitness coach as well. You know, very good at fitness preparation. So. You know, it's it's hard to say with an assistant coach like that exactly where his strengths lie, especially when the media in Ukraine attributes everything to him, and we don't know exactly what he has done. His record at Dynamo and previously, regardless of what his actual role has been, I think there's no question about it, the fact that, he's, that he has had success and he has had a positive impact at Dynamo. And I think he can do the same with Spartak whether it's with fitness or with working with Carrera for tactical purposes as well. Oh, that, that's obviously my hope. <laughs> that is going to be interesting. But uh, going back to original question, which Manu asked like 5-10 minutes ago, uh, yeah, it was a fairly routine win, 2-0 uh, away. Uh, Quincy Promise was the captain. Uh, big changes around Spartak. And uh, yeah, I'm very interested in what will happen post-season. But as of right now, uh, the goal is try to get the league, which is unrealistic. And the key goal, as I see it, just to get the second spot to make sure that we qualify for the Champions League in the group. I actually have my 50 rubles on this too, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> because I I don't actually think it's quite over yet. Um, so Spartak, remind me again, who are they playing next? The next last two games of Spartak? Rast- Rastov and Dynamo, both at home. Both at home. So essentially, they win those two games, right? That will get them to 59 points. And Loco are playing Sinit next in, yeah. in, at home, right? In Moscow. At, in Moscow, yeah. Yeah. So let's say they lose that game. Then all of a sudden you're at 56 and 57. And exactly. Then, and, and they have to go play against Artyom Zuba. Then they have to play Artyom Zuba in the last match. And at that point, Arsenal Tula might be gearing to get that sixth spot. Exactly. I, I'm just saying. It's not over. What was it? It was 13 years ago that Loco ruined a lead just like that one and then in the end didn't win the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm just saying, and it'd be absolutely... Oh, wow. I'm all happy with that <laughs> outcome. I, I'm just saying, I mean, you're quite right. There's a lot of leagues around Europe where, where it's all done and dusted and very boring. So, you know, it's kind of great that in Russia it isn't um, because obviously there is still a race. I think it will all come down to what will happen Match day 29. If Loco lose that game to Sinit, and remember Sinit have to desperately win that game. Desperately win that game. To have a fighting chance to stay in a Champions League race, right? And yeah, they have w- to. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, not done. They, they have to win. Yes, they absolutely. have to win. Absolutely have 
to win that game. There's a is no there's no two ways about it. So it's um yeah I think I I think match day twenty nine will go into match day thirty without knowing who's gonna win the title. I think that's that's quite significant because I mean Loco they could have gotten that title on Monday when they were facing Krasnodar at the Krasnodar Arena and they absolutely blew that, didn't they? I mean that game. That was not happy news for them at all. No, uh, pretty much you can qualify, you can even uh, summary the game as Fedor Smolov 2, Lokomotiv Moscow 0, because Fedor Smolov had a great game. Again, this is good for the national team ahead of uh, the World Cup and also good for for all the rumors, which surrounding, as always, uh, Fedor Smolov with his potential uh, move uh, to Europe. So he scored the penalty, he scored another good goal. Um, so the, he had a good name and the atmosphere was really, really good. The stadium was sold out there was lots of, um, fans, uh, from, from Moscow supporting the club because they were obviously hoping to win the league with that match. Uh, but, um, the, the other thing, which was really, really beautiful and everyone who, all the journalists who went there, they really described the atmosphere as, as, as phenomenal. And they all sp- spoke very highly, uh, about the park. Uh, which surrounds mm. the uh, Krasnodar Arena. Uh, Sergei Galski built a beautiful stadium, and he surrounded uh, the stadium with a beautiful park. And it was a wonderful summer day in Krasnodar. Krasnodar is a very warm place, and uh, people were just like having a great time. People showed out a few showed up a few hours before. They had picnics, they had games, they just were just chilling on, on the grass, and it looked like really, you know, a very beautiful football atmosphere. In, in the city and uh, it really, really like a big day uh, of football, which which is really in Russia we don't get that often because we have stadiums like Amkar Perm. And even uh, one journalist, which I personally follow, who is a diehard Spartak fan, and he says, listen, like I've been going to Kriti uh, Arena for the past uh, what, three, four years, and it's still, we don't get that because the, still the, the arena is beautiful, but it's surrounded to the construction site. Yeah. And in Krasnodar, it is just beautiful. So, uh, good job for again for Krasnodar as a club, young club, sold out game, beautiful atmosphere, and the victory for the home team. So probably you know another uh, plus to the job which Sergei Galitsky is doing in Krasnodar. Krasnodar can still reach the Champions League. Yeah, you know, you know, they they even on points with Zenit, both are on fifty. They're both two points behind CSKA. That win was. a big win for them of course they recently changed the head coach right and that was seems to be working out very well for them so i mean two very big games coming up for Grasnodar, and i guess i did see those pictures tim uh stunning absolutely stunning what a great world cup host city Krasnodar would have been eh mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh exactly, exactly. I, I i this is still um a decision that boggles the mind nobody understands no one understands because it would have been yeah, fantastic venue. Um, yeah, sadly, uh, no no trip for me to Krasnodar. I have booked most of my World Cup trips because I've got my my media tickets. So I I will not be in Krasnodar unless there will be a train passing through there. Um, but yeah, uh, sadly, uh, the the LOC decided not to put Krasnodar as one of the World Cup host cities. So yeah, I think that more or less does it for the Russian Football Premier League, Tim. Unless there is something you want to add before we move on to Ukraine? No, I'll just summarize that really, uh, even if we take about European places, all five teams have something to play. Nothing is decided. And it's it's really good because the 
we still have one uh, match between um, teams fighting for the top five spots. It's uh, like a Motiv Zenit game. And uh, like all five teams, they have to win. And it's it's massive, massive um, tension and the pressure on the clubs. And looks like the match day 30, which uh, usually the games are played at the same time, it will be just um, um, really a, like a mad show because all the teams will be fighting and will be watching how everyone else is playing. So it's exciting. So this is the time when you need to pay attention to the Russian Premier League if you haven't been doing because it's going to be very, very exciting. And I'm talking about just top five clubs. There's the whole battle below that for relegation and playoffs and potential six spots. So uh, I think I hope we're selling the Russian Premier League well. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we are. Mm-hmm. And it's a fun league to watch. And especially now the last two weeks are going to be very exciting. And of course, also, if you want to get ready to um, gear up for the World Cup, right? Um, which is what we're going to do very soon because we're going to have a bunch of special podcasts as we're going closer to the, to the World Cup. I'm very excited to do that. But yeah, um, Vadim, I want to get you completely involved in this conversation now because we're going to move to Ukraine. And, um, the, you know, at this point, we have three match days left. But before we get into all those matches and the, the title race at the very top between Shakhtar Donetsk and Dynamo Kiev, um, something that I wrote an article on um, uh, during the week um, was the possible expansion or re-expansion or back expansion to 16 clubs in the league. Um, there is, of course, the they selected a new president, uh, the league president, uh, Grimm, um, is supposed to fix the Grimm situation in Ukrainian football. He's Swiss, right? He's a lawyer. He's worked with the Ukrainian national team for quite some time. Um, he himself did not say that directly, but his deputy president said that the league wants to go back to 16 teams. Now, this article is up on footballgrad.com, but Vadim, I'm very interested to hear your opinion on this, and maybe we can discuss um, just the overall economic situation with some of the clubs of the second cities, as it was called in the article, that Ukrainian football is sort of missing out on right now. Well... His deputy, the deputy president said, we want to expand to 16 clubs. And in his first ever interview with the Ukrainian media, Grim, this, this new Swiss president of the Ukrainian Premier League, he said the same thing. This is something we want to do. But he also said, I recognize the economic situation in the country. There probably aren't even enough 16 stable clubs to run a 16 team league. So this is kind of, I think, I think what the deputy president said about doing this in two years is very optimistic and not realistic at all. And Grim, his, his, uh, he has a two year term. So unless he gets reelected or if he even plans on staying after the two years are up, we'll have to expand to 16 teams within this time frame. And yet he himself has said that this isn't a realistic time frame. So. Will we see an expansion within his tenure? It doesn't look likely. It's a very good question, though, because, I mean, when I wrote this article and I did a bit of research um, and just looking at the various cities, really, um, that had teams in the first division, because his deputy, he mentions uh, Lutsk, Ushort, um Dnepropetrovsk, of course. He didn't mention Kharkiv. Uh, I added that. Because it's an obvious one for me, even though Shachter Donetsk are playing there right now. And um trying to remember and of course, um I think that's it. That's all the major centers that he mentions that are sort of missing out. 
Creepus, of course, as well. Yeah, well, that that's been gone for a while though. Yeah. That, they've been gone since before the crisis even started. Yeah, they what well, is they were under uh, when I was living in Ukraine, and that was in the 2012-2013 season. But those are all big cities, Vadim, right? Um, at the same time, they don't have a club. But you mentioned a two-year term. We there will be um, a Nepro side as well Nepropetrovsk is no longer called Nepropetrovsk is now called Nepro, playing likely in the second division next year, right? Because of the, the the way promotion looks currently in the third division. Is that sort of what he's eyeing? I mean, I just, I, I'm with you. I don't know where these teams are supposed to come from. Uh, even though there's big markets in terms of cities, those those markets all failed in the recent in recent history. Well, the two obvious candidates, as you mentioned, are the reborn Metalists, who are playing in Kharkiv, and the reborn, the reborn Dnipro, which is strange to say because the original Dnipro also still exists in the same league. But that's a separate conversation entirely. So you have Metalist and Dnipro, let's just call them Dnipro for the sake of simplicity, who will be playing in the second division next season. And there's a possibility possibility that they will, you know, achieve two promotions in a row, especially if they have solid financial backing. But that means that we either have to promote more clubs and get relegated, or not relegate any clubs. Oh, that's a question in itself as well, right? Because you have teams like Kapati and Shonamoritz that are in big financial problems uh, and might not even survive in the top flight. So you're basically trying to get in new markets at the same time older markets are not surviving. Well, there's also, we know obviously Shakhtar and Zorya don't play in their home stadiums because of the war. But then you also have Veres Rivne, who I wanted to mention because they were promoted last, from last season, but they also don't have a stadium. They play in Lviv because their own stadium in Rivne mm. is not fit, not so much for European football, but even for the Ukrainian league. So you can imagine the state of that stadium. Yeah. And then Stal, Stal Kamenske, who were effectively it's Metalur Donetsk before they also that they were kind of merged, but really Stal took the place of Metalur Donetsk, and they're from Kamenske, which is in the Dnipro Oblast. Yet they don't have a stadium of their own either, and we're playing at Dnipro, which makes very little sense because there's, there's a, well, there was a top flight team at Dnipro at the time, so this team basically had no, no, no support of its own. And they also play in Kiev, and in, have played in other cities as well. So that's two teams on the top flight that aren't playing in their own stadiums, and not even because they're displaced by war, because they don't have their own stadiums. So now you're saying we're going to keep these teams in the top flight, and then add two more teams on top of that that might not survive? Hi, this is Rachel Fisher. And this is Desi Jenikin. And we host the Hollywood Crime Scene Podcast. We're really excited to tell you about the best Christmas ever on AMC+, where every day feels like Christmas morning. It's the holiday season, and that means it's time to see old friends like Buddy the Elf, Heat Miser, and Clark Griswold. Plus, you get a stocking stuffed with highly acclaimed AMC series like The Walking Dead and Mad Men, new series like Gangs of London and The Walking Dead World Beyond. They're all here on AMC+. So celebrate the best Christmas ever, anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? 
Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, it seems like a very difficult proposition. I mean, we we talked, we had a few articles on Stahl uh, that you wrote, I think, about two years ago at this point now, right? Um, and it's it that's a, it's very interesting situation just with them. And I mean, there's so many clubs like that in Ukrainian football that even with the 12 teams that they have, there isn't stability. Um, and I think maybe. Of course, and this, this, this is the, this is the whole, the whole issue that I have. Um, you have now Arsenal, Kiev come up. That's, that, they look like they've been a bit more stable because they did, since they've been, they went bust, um, five years ago and have been slowly being rebuilt. They could be a stable, stable side coming up, although you never know, right? Um, but really what is maybe the, the biggest problem is that some of the big clubs that are traditionally have been big clubs and very well supported clubs, they are now being rebuilt in the lower divisions, whereas clubs that, you know, where you mentioned various, I want to throw in maybe a circle as well and star that they have no financial foundations really to be in this, in this league. Not even just a lack of financial foundations, but as you mentioned, infrastructure. So is it maybe just a, trying to weed out those clubs, stabilizing the 12 league team rather than going to 16? Um, going, which seems like a pipe dream at the moment, given everything that's going on, that would make almost more sense to me. Trying to get the big clubs in the big cities back into this league, um, rather than forcefully going back to 16 teams. I agree partially. I don't think it's fair to single out Zirka and Alexandria because even though they, you know, they're from smaller cities or even towns, they ha and their infrastructure is maybe not world class, but they, for the most part, actually pay their players' wages, mm -hmm. which in Ukraine is actually an impressive accomplishment. So, and Oleksandria, you know, they, they almost made it to Europe, and last season they knocked Dinamo out of the Ukrainian Cup. So I think this team fully deserves its place in the Ukrainian Premier League, even if it's not from one of the big cities. So if we weed anyone out, I'd rather it be teams like Stai, who have virtually no support base and no stadium of their own, rather than the teams from some of the smaller towns that still deserve their place. But whether or not that's enough for 16 teams, I don't think that's the case at the moment. You regularly have teams that finish in the top two of the of the second division and either refuse promotion or don't get promoted for some other reason. Last last season it happened with this not. Yeah. But that's not really the, the only instance. I mean, we talked a little bit beforehand and... Um... There seems to be a lot of skepticism about Krim, period. I mean, there's a lot of foreigners now working in the Ukrainian Premier League. The the other one is, of course, uh, fame, the most famous one, uh, Pierluigi Colina, the former referee, who is running the, the, the refereeing side of things in Ukrainian football, right? Um, it's, it's interesting that, that the league is going so much with foreign specialists. Well, Kolina has been in charge since, I don't know, it's been at least five years now, maybe more, yeah. but spends about two weeks, two weeks per year in the country. So how much is he really running things? It really seems like he's, he's getting a paycheck and 
He's been criticized not just for not spending much time in the country, but also for being perfectly okay with the with the rampant corruption in the federation. And then the other foreign hire recently is uh, is Francesco Baranca, who is the head of Federbet, which is an anti-match fixing organization. And he regularly gives interviews talking about how match fixing is a cancer on Ukrainian football, how Ukrainian football can survive if this continues. But in the time that he's been around, absolutely nothing has actually actually been done to combat match fixing. So you have these two high-profile foreigners working in Ukrainian football. Neither of them have really accomplished anything. So understandably, there's skepticism about another foreigner coming in who becomes president of the Ukrainian Premier League. And he's on friendly terms with Pavelka, the, the head of the Football Federation of Ukraine. So how, how much independence will he really have to make meaningful reforms? So for those reasons, there's been quite a lot of skepticism. Even some, you know, Surkis and the director of Zoria have said, you know, best of luck, but we don't really know if this is going to lead to anything. So I don't, I don't know if this is this experiment will work out, or if anyone really believes it will work out. Yeah, interesting times. I, I, I think this this appointment by by the Swiss lawyer Grimm is going to be something. Maybe something to, to to discuss even in an article, right, Vadim? Because I mean, there's there's so much there, and there's um so many issues still going on in Ukrainian football. Uh, some of them are related to the war, of course, but some of them are just in-house problems that have nothing to do with the war at all. I mean, when you look at certain clubs in the western half of the country that have just as many issues as, or maybe even more issues than the clubs that are playing in exile, um, it, it seems something rather more endemic. Um, something that has to do with the very root problems of the country rather than with external influences um, in some ways. So something that I personally find very fascinating. And of course, all these factors are related because you have the financial crisis precipitated by the war and then that has just kind of you know, revealed just how much Ukrainian football, how, how many of these clubs are dependent on oligarchs. And when the economy takes a downturn and the oligarchs can no longer afford to finance these clubs or just don't really want to. You see things like, you know, like two historic clubs like Metalist and Dnipro completely collapsing. And the effects are felt throughout the country, not just in the big clubs. Mm, absolutely. But uh, Vadim, before we, before we move on, uh, or before we finish this off, I, I really want to look into this title race because we have the weekend results, of course. Um, Schachter and Dynamo still at the very top of the table. They're just separated by three points, 69 points for Schachter Donetsk, 66 points for Dynamo Kiev. We have three games left in the season, um, just like in Russia. Um, overall, all teams are going to play 32 games. Um, the league is, of course, separated right now in a championship half and a relegation half. Both Schachter and Dynamo got their wins that we always expect from them to get. But it was a tight affair, wasn't it, for both teams? They both struggled with 1-0 victories. For Dynamo, it's more understandable because they were playing Vorskla Poltava, who are most likely going to get the bronze medal. They're going to finish in third place, which equals their best ever finish. So you can see why they would be motivated, especially in front of a crowd of around 14,000 people. This, is, this was the best attended match all season long that wasn't between Dynamo and Shakhtar. The other, the other result with Shakhtar beating Mariupol only 1-0 was actually far more surprising because Mariupol are effectively Shakhtar's farm team. They have 10 players on loan 
They're actually, they're sometimes called Arindupal, uh, from the word Arienda, which means loan. <laughs> they're effectively... <laughs> They're effectively owned by Akhmetov. You know, if you if you look at the money, you trace where the money is coming from, they have the same owner as Shakhtar. And now goal difference might come. It's unlikely, but goal difference might be a factor because it's the first head-to-head, it's the first tiebreaker, and Dinamo and Shakhtar might finish on equal points. So I was fully expecting Mariupol to just kind of lay down and let Shakhtar pad their goal difference. That's not what happened. It was a, a 1-0 victory, and... I don't want to say Shakhtar got lucky, but still, it was unexpected to me. And it was actually kind of refreshing to see that it wasn't a completely corrupt match. Yeah, but, I mean, at the same time, you can't really, you know, I think it would have been too obvious if uh, Shakhtar would have just rolled over them. I think, uh, you know, there, there would have been a lot of controversy. And also, I wonder, and this is, this is, this is I mean, a fair question, right? Um, Go differential might matter for Mariupol as well. Um, so maybe they didn't, maybe that 1-0 was exactly what both sides wanted. That's also a good point. It's just I feel like, you know, if, if you're talking about the, the priorities of these teams, I think Shakhtar would always take uh, take precedent, precedence. But right now the goal difference is 10 between Shakhtar and Dinamo. So realistically, Dinamo needs to make up quite a few in order to make the last match competitive. And that's only if, but that's only if the uh, point difference is still three at that time. The best chance that Dinamo have to make up points is this weekend when Shakhtar are playing Zorya. And this is a very interesting situation because up until basically two seasons ago, Zorya was Shakhtar's farm team. They regularly had about six or seven Shakhtar players on loan. Now that's changed quite a lot because now Zorya have made a strong effort to become more independent and not reliant on other clubs. They only have two players on loan now, and they're both from Dinamo. So they've kind of tried to make a break, which tried to get out of Shakhtar's sphere of influence, as we like to call it. Mm-hmm. And they've beaten Shakhtar once this season already in a match that ended with Shakhtar with only eight men on the pitch. So these teams don't exactly have great relations right now. And then you add in another factor, which is the what what we call the chimadanchiki, the briefcases, which are basically incentives sent by you know Surkis or Akhmetov to the clubs that are playing the other team. That maybe you know if you can if you can take some points off our opponents, maybe there will be something in it for you. So it's a type of corruption, but not not like you know where you pay your team to lo- where you pay a team to lose. It's really kind of an incentive. <laughs> I, I I love that. It sounds more corrupt than it is, Vadim, though, because even in German football, we we have teams um, sending other teams a little bit of a bonus um, if they beat their opponents, not to to lose games, of course, to win games, right? I I think that's that's definitely legal, and it's definitely something that they have in Russia as well, right, Tim? Yeah, that's a very common st- statistic, especially in the time when Giner was had money. That was a common situation yeah yeah i think that happens actually everywhere in the world and in italy i heard those stories so um yeah it's not really match fixing it's kind of yeah like incentive play hunter and we'll give, we'll give you money um but yeah but i can see how in ukrainian league that could help especially with the, the zarya game that's actually interesting Ukraine where players often don't even get their wages on time you know, this could be more of an incentive than it would be <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think it's it's a very different uh, in the Bundesliga, right, where you offered like maybe a little bit of extra money, or often case Bayern will send like uh because Oli Hoeneß he owns a, a sausage factory, he will send like uh sausage uh, breakfast sausages to the team that beats one of their opponents um at the final day of the championship and like a truckload of vice beer. Um, it's a little bit of a different incentive than a briefcase full of money for a team that or players that haven't probably not been paid for months and months and months. Um, I mean, there's so many clubs in Ukrainian football where that is the case. There's the Black Book of Europe that I think we have covered in an article before too, right, Vadim, where many Ukrainian clubs are listed for not paying player wages. So, yeah, ab- absolutely you're right. It's technically not illegal, but um, I think it's a bit of a different incentive when you are giving a little bit of extra cash to players that haven't been paid in a while. Yeah, absolutely. But as I said, it's it's much better than the alternative, which is paying somebody to lose. It's just still these matches are. If anything, they're going to be more competitive now. And you no, know, the league might come down to who who gives a better incentive to the other team, Akhmiata or Surkis, because Dinamo are playing Mariupol this weekend. And obviously, as I mentioned, Mariupol are basically a Shakhtar farm team. So if they can get a nice incentive from their real owner, you know, I'm kind of joking, but. Who can give the better incentives? And if that's what the league comes down to, you know, that's it would be pretty typical. Uh, yeah, who gives the better Brasniki, right? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's always a good question. You know, looking ahead, you, you already mentioned Dinamo host at Mariupol. Of course, this was a match that we've covered in very lengthy because of the Dinamo refusing to go there. Um, now Mariupol heading to, to Kiev. Um, what, do you, what do you think, what kind of sense do you get um, will happen there. Is there anything kind of backlash going to happen from the match that Dinamo refused uh, to go to? Of course, Dinamo have gone uh, for in in the the closing stage of the season. So, do you think there's going to be any kind of backlash for this? Not any kind of serious backlash. The the funny thing that happened earlier this season, the last time Mariupol went to Kiev, is that their president said we will demand security assurances from Surkis that the team will be safe in Kiev, in the capital. Obviously not really demanding anything, but just kind of poking fun at Surkis for demanding security assurances in Mariupol, saying, well, Kiev isn't safe either. Can you guarantee that we'll be safe? Can you guarantee that nothing will happen? Obviously, Mariupol went, and they will go again this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> uh, funny story to follow. And then, of course, Shachter Sawyer, you already mentioned uh, Shachter and Sawyer. I, this, this was actually the last uh, game that I watched live in, in Ukraine was the the cup final now in 2016 between Shakhtar and Soria, which was actually a very good game um, at the time. Um, so I, I think I think that's going to be a fascinating game. And um, Tim, I think you had a comment on this as well. Yeah, like it's it, it was kind of a little bit going back to the to the match fixing. Uh, Vadim, I heard the story about the game between uh, Valin and Gelios, which was again like a match fixing scandal or something like that. Have do you know that story? What from how long ago was this? Uh, last match day, in the Pervai Liga, Valin versus Gelios. Uh, I don't know directly about it, but these kind of stories pop up all the time, and it's not the type of match fixing where one team is paid to lose, but players are paid for specific things to happen. Uh-huh. So and the money always comes from places like Singapore and Southeast Asia, and there are just ridiculous amounts placed on. That that is yeah, first division. Yeah, that was the case because like Valin, they're on 14th place, 
right now when they were even lower before that. And Gelios, they were fighting for the to to go to the Premier League, but they kind of already lost their chances. And the betting coefficient for Valin, which is like you know in relegation, uh, playing against the team which was like I think fifth place was 125, so it was kind of based, speaking in terms of, like, you know, betting language, it was kind of a done deal, pretty much, and, like, nothing could happen, and the more people were putting money onto this bet, the more money, like, the coefficient was going down, so, again, it's, you know, it's, it's no, nobody's proven, but that's, again, a story which, like you said, comes up in, in Ukraine fairly often. This happens in under-21 matches, and even, this was really an infamous case, two or three seasons ago, a friendly between Chernomoriets and Olympique Donetsk. Is there friendly. Place, a friendly that took place at a training ground that wasn't even televised had hundreds of thousands of dollars placed on it. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the really big problems with betting um, in in Southeast Asia, especially. And uh, you know, when when players don't get paid, and you can any game in the world can be bet on. So a, a lower division game, and this is this is not just in Ukraine, but Ukraine is is a very good example for this. So in in the youth level, it's very hard to keep a tap on on games like that, right? Um, so lots of money can be placed on this, and you, little incentives are needed to sway a game one way or another. So it's very cheap to sway games, and then lots and lots of money can be earned that way, um, which is of course. Betabit is one of the organizations that are supposed to catch that, right, Vadim? And I mean, we get stories like that all the time that a game um, has been has been possibly uh, been fixed. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember which team it was where they suspended a whole bunch of junior players. That was last season when we actually had the story up on footballgrad.com. Uh, one of the teams basically suspended their entire youth team. Yeah, that was Zoria. Yeah, that's right. It was Zoria. They basically, there was one of the youth teams fixed and Soria reacted by basically kicking out all the players involved, showing them, as we said in the headline, showing them the red card. And this, this is still a very common problem, right? Yeah, that was, that was an exception rather than the rule, you know, their, their reaction. Usually it's, it seems like it's tolerated for the most part, if maybe not directly encouraged. And you said, yeah, Federbet is their, their task with catching this. And I mentioned earlier Baranka, who, who is in charge of this in Ukraine now. According to his interviews, he catches it all the time. And Ukraine passed an, a specific law two years ago against corruption in sport. And Pavelka said, you know, this is it. We're going to fight this now. The law has still never actually been implemented. So nothing has come of it. And even if you catch all these matches that are fixed, if you don't do anything about them, then what's the point of having a law like this? Yeah, absolutely. No, um, it, it's it's a fascinating topic, um, and they, we have a few articles up on footballgrad.com, so you know we definitely want to direct people to that, and we'll, we'll definitely look into that that case uh, that you mentioned in particular, Tim, because I think that's that's going to be an interesting story as well. We'll cover that on footballgrad.com in in the coming days. But sadly, boys, um, we're out of time for today, so <laughs> I have to kind of end it right here. Um, I'm going to you first, Vadim. Um, feel free to plug everything that you want to plug or anything that's come up. Floor is yours. I don't have much to plug at the moment. Uh, hopefully, once finals and everything like that is done, I'll be able to pump out some more content. 
But you can still follow me on Twitter at vfermanov. If I ever, you know, any more content that I come up with, it'll definitely be on there. And I'm sure Manu will be nice enough to promote it as well. Oh, absolutely. I always do. Um, and anything that you post, of course, on Football Grad will be at Football Grad Live. Um, Tim, how about you? What's going on with your life? Uh, anything you want to pluck? Anything you want to promote? Floor is yours. This week is my best week in terms of a football fan because I have this opinion that the the uh, the return or like second leg of uh, Champions League semi final is the highest class of football which is, and the most exciting football which exists in the world. I mean I mean like those two games, the second games of Champions League semi finals are my favorite. So I watched one yesterday. I will watch one tonight as well, and I'm just very excited. To me, this is like this is the football for me. Um, but yeah, you can follow me on Russian Tim sixty one at on Twitter and uh, on Instagram Rocket from Russia. Yeah, great stuff. I agree. Yesterday's game was uh, a nail biter. Um, little disappointed for the Football Grad Network. We would have liked to see Bayern in the final. Would have been good times for us to report on it. We'll still do something on the final regardless because it's in Kiev. So there will be plenty of content coming. Champions League content will be of course continuing um, despite Bayern being out because it is in Kiev and. Um, just because we have covered every stage significantly uh, in this tournament, so we'll continue doing that. And that will be all at Football Grad Live. You can put, find this podcast at Football Grad Live. We're on iTunes. We're on Acast. Um, we're on the Anfield Index app, so you can find us there as well. And please, uh, if you have any questions, contact us directly. Contact at footballgrad.com for any questions that you may have on this podcast, topics that you want us to cover, etc. Feel free to send us an email, contact us on Twitter, um, leave us a rating on iTunes, that's always appreciated as well. Um, so yeah, that's it. Um, until next week, das Vidanje. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.